It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, this is John Bornstein. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Engage in Truth. I'm so excited that you are tuning in today because we are continuing our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Yes, we're back on track the last couple weeks. I was trying to give you some encouragement, especially as the news continued to break about coronavirus and, and its impact to our society at large. And we just needed some encouragement and to be reminded a little bit about how God works throughout history, even shaking things up from time to time and, and, and getting his people back into a posture of total dependency on him. So here we are, we're, we're continuing in our study of what we began a few weeks ago about how to finish well. And so this is part of our ongoing study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so we've now been in 1 Corinthians for well, several months. And as you know, as a verse-by-verse church, expository church, we like to go through these books of the Bible verse-by-verse so we can understand the detail that God is revealing to us and helping us understand the application of His Word. After all, we're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And this is extremely fitting in what we're talking about here today, given the landscape and, and what's going on in the culture today. And so here we're talking about how to finish well. We ended the last program in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talking about idolatry and immorality, about this, this how we are, are coming against God and provoking God with idolatry and immorality. And, and now we're going to pick up with how the people would test God. Boy, that seems fitting, doesn't it? So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, picking up in verse 9. If you missed the previous episodes, and, and as we were going through this study, you can pick those up again at calvaryfountain.com. And, and there, when you go to the website, there's a video and audio link. You click that, it'll drop down some options. One of those is for radio and podcast, and you can re-listen to each of these broadcasts there, and then hopefully share it with your friends and family and all of your sphere of influence. Get the word out. Let's encourage folks. Let's, let's show them how we find comfort and great faith and hope in God's Word, even conviction, and we do need that. So here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Uh, you're like, wow, that's encouraging. John, thank you for that. Well, again, I'm just the messenger, and, and the word is imperative that we read it for as it, as it says, because we know that for such a time as this, uh, God knew that we were going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, so I'm not holding back on you. So here's what it says. Again, let me read it. 1 Corinthians 10, 9. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Now, in Numbers chapter 21, uh, this is a reference to that, that the Israelites, they had tested God by taxing his patience. You got to Numbers 21, 4 to 6, we read, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. <laughs> Again, not very encouraging, but you see how they were provoking God. They were speaking out against him, even for his 
faithfulness to provide for them. They, they wanted all of the fancy food of Egypt, even though they were under oppression, even though they were under wicked rulership and idolatry, they were lusting after the system. Remember, Egypt was to Israel like Babylon is to the world. It was a system of governance, of wickedness, idolatry, and, and, and the polygamy and uh, you know all the things that were going on. I, I mean, this polytheistic culture that was going on around them. Every way that they were capable of, it seemed like, they were finding ways to sin and break God's heart in those cultures. And so they were lusting for that. They were lusting for the world system rather than for God. And so in Psalm 78, verse 18, it says, And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. No longer just being pleased with God's provision, they wanted the luxuries, the things of the flesh. So Moses memorialized the people's faithlessness with a play on words, calling the place where they tested God and wrangled with Moses Massah, which means testing or proof, and Meribah, which means quarreling or full finding. Okay, so they continued to complain, even though he faithfully provided for them. His provision of manna and water was somehow now inadequate from their point of view, and they despised it. <laughs> As a result, God sent serpents into their camps. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not sure I'd pick that way to die. God does not look so kindly on lack of faith. And like Israel, the Corinthians had given evidence of being dissatisfied with God's provision. The Corinthians were disgruntled with God's servants, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, and the Corinthians repulsed God with their sinful arrogance in 1 Corinthians 4, 18 and 8, 1. And the Corinthians indicated dissatisfaction with the Lord's Supper even by participating in pagan feasts in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. And, and we even see the Corinthians were divided over class distinctions in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. So we can test God in similar ways as well. And when we do so, we risk the chastening hand of God. So Paul wants us to know that idolatry can keep us from finishing well. When we desire the world more than purity and walking in righteousness before God, the, the Lord knows our heart. These lusts of our flesh can keep us out of God's good favor. And then we wonder why all this calamity can happen to us when we've been walking in disobedience while simultaneously claiming the name of Christ. Oh, it's a dangerous territory to be in. And number four, the people were grumbling. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. So tragically, the image of grumbling seems to characterize the whole wilderness experience of Israel. I mean, rather than demonstrating the, the dependency on God that they should have had and their faith in God in the midst of adverse circumstances, it became this people group that were just constantly complaining. That's, that's the legacy that they left behind. Is that really what you and I want to leave behind for our children? That when calamity strikes, when there's uncertainty and fear, do we really want to be the people that are constantly grumbling and complaining before God, or are we grateful for his provision and his faithfulness to us despite all adversity? Exodus 15 through Numbers 17 seem to highlight the attitudes of the people quite well, and this sinful behavior began one month after the Exodus. It didn't take long at all. So sadly, God's people grumbled incessantly 
for a period of two years, and not, and then God had to decree that all those 20 years or older uh, would, would not be able to go into the promised land. Uh, so they, 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 he had to now set this judgment upon the people because of this faithlessness. Do you think God really wanted to do that? No. He wants to bless his children. He says, if, if your earthly fathers know how to give gifts, imagine then how much more your Abba Father, your heavenly Father, knows how to give you gifts. And he wants to bless us. His heart is a heart of mercy, but he also has to judge wickedness and, and, and sinfulness that, uh, that go hand-in-hand in, hand in that. So they were made to wander in the desert until their death, according to Numbers 14, 26 to 38. And interesting, they did not like the answer that they got from God on that. <laughs> can, you, can you blame them? Uh, here they're, they're now under the judgment of Almighty God. So what do they do? They attempt to go into the promised land anyway, And so Moses warns them that they would be going not only into enemy-occupied territory, but they'd be going against God, and God would not be with them as a result. And sure enough, the Amalekites and the Canaanites both attacked them and drove them back, according to Numbers 14, 39 to 45. So here they were experiencing victory, and now all of a sudden they're experiencing defeat. They thought that all those victories were in their own strength. They had forgotten God. They're like, well, we don't like the answer that God has given to us, so we're just going to do it on our own strength. And it failed miserably. So the Edomites were against them. The Egyptians were against them. The Amalekites and the Canaanites, the only one who was on their side, Yahweh, they turned on him. And, and then the fate was sealed. So Paul's deliberate link with testing God demonstrates that grumbling is particularly associated with putting God to the test, according to Exodus 17, 2-3. So it seems that here Paul is reflecting on the Israelites grumbling about food and helping them see the bigger picture in this. So on these occasions, what we find is that God's anger was particularly kindled against the people. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, God sent fire that consumed some of the people on the edge of the camp. Paul adds that God executed by his wrath by using a destroyer, a fact that Moses did not mention in Numbers. However, the translators of the Greek Old Testament used the same term uh, for, for this destroyer to describe the one who, even the one who executed the Egyptians firstborn on the night of the Exodus. So this, of course, could be the Apollyon or Abaddon that we read in Revelation chapter 9, who's also the king of the locust army of the abyss. But Numbers 11 begins with people being slain for grumbling against God and ends with people being slain for grumbling against God. Some were burned with holy fire and some died from a plague. But the point is made. And in Numbers chapter 16, Israel also grumbled against both Moses and Aaron, and that resulted in a man by the name of Korah leading a rebellion that ends up with 15,000 people dying. God took the lives of 15,000 chosen people because they were complaining, and their complaining led to a rebellion. You see why this is such a serious issue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, we read, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so the word here, it clearly means an example or example in guidance. We picked that up from a number of scriptures like uh, Philippians chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 4, amongst many others. So this is a reminder or a warning for all of us to change course, to be in a corrective action. 
to pay heed to these things so we don't fall to the same fate that they had. And I even use the word fate lightly there. But but in the reality, we know what provokes the hand of God, righteous judgment. Why then do the same course of action? We should turn from our wicked ways. We should repent and seek the God of heaven and earth. And Romans 15, 4 says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So this theme of ingratitude for all the blessings that God had given them marks this whole section. God's people wanted more. His presence, his provision, his availability, and his power weren't enough. That's not what they wanted more of. And I think that you and I can often relate with that. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you grumble and complain, either against God directly or against those whom he has delegated or allowed his leadership over you, like your parents or teachers, pastors, bosses, you're really questioning his wisdom, his grace, his goodness, and his righteousness. So I'd encourage you to cultivate now an attitude of gratitude, even in the midst of struggle. Pick your friends wisely. We'll we'll look later to 1 Corinthians 15, 33, where Paul will warn that evil company corrupts good habits. If we're constantly consuming of the world and this ungrateful spirit before everything, anger towards politicians and government and seeking them to absolve everything, and and then frustrated when they don't, and we constantly have this attitude of, of, of dissatisfaction with everything, then what we're finding is we're actually just feeding the sinful nature within us, rather than putting our eyes on Jesus. So in light of all that Paul has said, he, he challenges the Corinthians in with these words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So those who have great beginnings may still fall and ruin the latter days of their lives. This is why Paul will talk about running that race as to win, to persevere, to push ahead, to press out like your chest leaning across that finish line. And yet what we find is that the child of God who thinks that they've arrived seemingly are being set up by the devil to be knocked down in a big way. Those on the mountaintop are usually the most vulnerable to attack. So if you remember way back in 2017 when we were in Revelation chapter 3, we read about the city of Sardis. And it was known biblically as the home of the church that received the fifth of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire and one of the greatest cities in the ancient world. It was fabled for all its wealth and splendor, but yet it deteriorated quickly. It's been considered, it had been considered, if you will, this impregnable, impenetrable fortress, this, this uh, impenetrable, this, this strong tower that no one could scale, no one could bring it down. And, and it was the ideal physical arrangement and topography even for defense. It was the, the fortress, the city on a hill that could not be taken. It was surrounded by steep cliffs that were almost impossible to scale and only one narrow way of approach. So those in Sardis felt that they could not be defeated. They had been attacked and conquered twice because of the arrogance that was manifested in them and the lack of watchfulness, they became so proud and arrogant and haughty, thinking themselves that nobody can come against us. We're up here in this natural fortification. There's no way that anybody's going to bring us down. And they were defeated twice. And so the ruins of this once great city are left as a reminder to us all of what pride and arrogance can do. 
And fortunately, we could choose to avoid disqualification and finish well. And again, we're talking about losing rewards. We're not talking about the issue of salvation here. But, but we're not just living a life in Christ Jesus for fire insurance. We're to be bold and courageous in him. He says in verse 13 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now this could also be translated as testing. And practically speaking, this term can be translated as temptation and testing. And we have mistranslated the section of Scripture so often that it hurts. You've probably heard it said, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not scriptural at all. Let's read what 2 Corinthians 1, 3-11 has to teach us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we were afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation, and our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So Paul specifically declares that God does give you more than you can handle. So let me remind you of what I've shared with you back when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Noah couldn't handle the flood. Moses couldn't handle Pharaoh. Deborah couldn't handle Sisera. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't handle the furnace. Daniel couldn't handle the lions. Stephen couldn't handle the angry crowds. The Bible doesn't ever paint a picture that you're able to handle anything without God. And Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. So when someone is laboring for Christ and their calling and their world seems to be falling apart, don't tell them that God won't give them more than they can handle. Rather, you encourage and pray for them as Paul prayed for us. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think 
according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. If someone is going through the storms, but their Bible is looks like it's about ready to fall apart, then encourage them because they're grounded in the word and seeking the Lord. But if their Bible looks pristine and it looks like it's just simply holding down the coffee table as a decoration in the house, well, they may be suffering as a result of pursuing their own agenda and not doing the will of God. And you go back to 1 Peter 3.17 on that. And, and they may not be operating in their calling and must examine themselves before God as David prayed in Psalm 26.2. So a lot of times, people who are floundering in their faith often fail to execute the basics. I mean, they, they rarely go to church. Prayer seems scarce. Their reading of the word may be a New Year's resolution. And they struggle in their marriage, struggle in service, struggle to get back to God. But what we find are constant examples then of what we must do in situations like those. In Genesis 31, 13, God told Jacob to come back to him because Jacob had vowed to do so in Genesis 28, 18, and 22. And God was in Bethel where Jacob was supposed to be. But Jacob waited 22 years and he finally returns in Genesis chapter 35, he had been wasting his time, if you will, outside of God's will. He was only a few miles up the road and refused to make the trek to God because he wasn't ready to humble himself in service to God. So if you're contemplating a detour rather than going to Bethel where you're supposed to be in the presence of God, then take this word to heart. You will never find what you're looking for outside of the presence of God. It's not worth it. Besides, God will eventually come to you again and call you back to where you're supposed to be in the first place. So why expend the effort of traveling far outside of his will and then retracing your steps back to where he originally wanted you to be? So some takeaways here, verse 13, is that temptation is common to every person, so there's no temptation that's unique. So what he's saying here, a literal reading of this would be that no temptation has seized you that is not human. No, no one can hide behind the argument that his sin or her sin is unique so that they can excuse it. No, no, no. The, the devil is very predictable and God uses him to refine our faith. So God controls the context of our temptation. We've all seen load limit signs on highways, bridges, and elevators, knowing that too much strain can cause severe damage or even complete collapse. And engineers determine the exact amount of stress that various materials can safely endure. And then they post warnings telling us not to exceed that maximum load. Well, human beings also have their load limits, which vary from person to person. So, so some people, for example, they, they can bear the pressure of trial and temptation better than others. Yet everyone has a breaking point, and it can take only so much. So in this verse, Paul promises that God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond what you're able. Yet we must draw on God to deliver us. And then thirdly, we see that God personally and providentially provides a specific way of escape. So, so the use of the, 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 the way that this is structured here, that it, it points to a particular way of escape that is available for each temptation. It's, a, it's something that we're to be looking out for, that we're to look for an escape route. There is a way out if we want out of it. So overcoming temptation is not a matter of simply sitting down on a sofa with a box of chocolates and telling God to make some way of escape from whatever sin that we're being tempted by. It's a responsibility on our part to bear it, to stand up, to flee. And Paul wants us to be victorious. He wants us to persevere through our tests and temptations. He is 
for us. Now, I, I remember, you know, in the brief time that we have left together here, I remember that I was going through tennis lessons with my grandmother, and uh, she was really pushing me to be a very uh, disciplined tennis player. She would work me every time I would get after, you know, done after school, uh, you know, I don't want to kick back, maybe even throw the ball around with my buddies. Uh, she would tell me that I, I needed to get to work. And, uh, and, and, and so she would push me, she would push me. And I, I so appreciate that now. What great memories. But she would also tell me that as I was playing, what I would tend to do is lean on my natural gifts, as she would say, that I thought I was naturally gifted. And then I would tend to make self-imposed errors. And I would fault on the first serve because I would try to cram it down my opponent's throat only to be thwarted by them, you know, by the ball maybe hitting the net or by a strong return that I couldn't return. So my pride was trying to surface and make a statement only to be humbled by some nylon in the way. I mean, this, this little nylon net was now humbling my pride as I was trying to make this, this strong statement through my serve. And so my grandmother said, she said, John, you don't have to make these mistakes. It has nothing to do with ability. It has to do with concentration, focus, and control. If you lead with emotion, you will fail. But discipline will carry you through. Oh, I remember those words. Thank you, Grandma. Thank you for your faithfulness. I didn't understand what she meant at the time. Only knew that I was tired. I only knew that I was frustrated. I only knew that, you know, hey, I was young and I just wanted to go play. But today, I appreciate more than ever those incredible words of wisdom. And so Paul's imploring us, be obedient to God. Finish well. It doesn't matter how you begin. It only matters how you end. It ain't over till it's over. And let me just encourage you that you have an Abba Father in heaven who loves you. According to Romans chapter 8, verses 13 to 17, follow your Abba Father in humble obedience, no matter what adversity you face today. Praise God for our Abba Father. I hope you've been encouraged here today. And if you're looking for a church to fellowship with, even though we may be still on lockdown or you know, just trying to, to find a way to social distance. And, you know, it's hard to gather together as groups these days. I know we've actually had folks uh, coming into the parking lot and trying to use megaphones or whatever we can. We've been using the internet, uh, trying to do prayer calls on telephones. So again, if you just want to connect with somebody, you just want to hear a voice, somebody who's going to love on you, and not just a recorded voice, but a real person on the other end, would you reach out to us at calvaryfountain.com? You can call us, you can email us, you can get on our prayer calls. You can check us out online, watch the sermons online as well at 10 a.m. on Sundays. But go to calvaryfountain.com to learn more. Again, it's calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. God bless you, my friends. We love you. We thank you. God bless you. Take care. Bye-bye.